So we're going to be reading Mark chapter 9, verse 1 to 37. Uh, The context of this, Jesus had just predicted his death and uh, talked to the crowds and said that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And we're going to start reading chapter 9, verse 1 now, where he says to these disciples, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was 
Running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive him out? He replied, this kind can, can come out only by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching the disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Halfway through our chapter today, we saw that Jesus and his disciples enter a house in Capernaum and things are tense. The disciples are annoyed with each other and Jesus makes things even more tense in a way because he asked them what they were arguing about out there on the road. And we're told in verse 34, on the way they'd argued about who was the greatest. Now to us, this probably sounds so self-centered and egotistical. But I'm sure they wouldn't have seen it that way. I'm sure they would have been thinking that every movement needs its 2IC. And they've been hearing Jesus talking a lot about his death lately. I'm sure they're thinking, well, if Jesus does die, who's going to be the natural successor to keep leading things? And what's wrong with wanting to be great anyway? Shouldn't we want to be the greatest that we can be? Well, it all depends in whose eyes we want to appear great, doesn't it? Do we want to appear great in our own eyes or in the eyes of our peers? Or do we want to be great in the eyes of God? Today in Mark 9, we see what God considers true greatness to be like. And to see this properly, we've, we've got to jump back in time to a couple of weeks earlier And what we see is that what God considers true greatness to look like is, of course, Jesus. But once we've properly seen Jesus' greatness and when we hold his greatness before us and we keep it there, God also reveals to us 
what true greatness looks like in people like us. So jump back with me a few weeks before the disciples had this argument about who is the greatest. We jump back to when Peter has just confessed Jesus to be the Messiah. From this point on, Jesus keeps telling them that contrary to what they might expect, this means that he's going to face suffering and he's going to be humiliated. And not just him actually, but them too. But he tells them their sacrifice it won't be meaningless. They'll be playing a part in God's kingdom. And one day Jesus will acknowledge them before the Father. And in fact, he says right there in the first verse of chapter 9, even before death, some of them would get to see the kingdom of God come in power. Look at 9 verse 1 with me. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Now most will die never having seen this. Most will die just believing in it. And the first time that they ever get to see the kingdom of God come with power is when they cross over to the other side of death and open their eyes and see. But some, some will get to see it even before death. And so six days later, that's exactly what happened for just three of those who were standing there. Having told them that suffering lies ahead, Jesus then gives them a glimpse of what lies even further ahead beyond that. We heard Jesus is changed before their very eyes. He, he shines brighter than, than anything they've ever seen anywhere else. And great heroes from, from Israel's past, Moses and Elijah, they join and come and honour Jesus from beyond death. And then in verse 7, we hear that God himself honours Jesus. We read, Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my Son whom I love. And this glimpse of Jesus' greatness, it's entirely for the benefit of the disciples. How Jesus appears, who they see with him, what they hear. It's all so that they can know without a doubt where true greatness lies. In God's eyes, true greatness lies with Jesus, the son he loves. Jesus won't stop talking about being humiliated and suffering, even on the way down from the mountain, he's still talking about it. And to the disciples, it sounds like the very opposite of greatness. But here, on the mountaintop, God is allowing them to see that rather than Jesus' suffering taking away from his greatness, his willingness to do what he's doing is exactly why he's so great in God's eyes. Now, if we're to be followers of Jesus, then we need to see this first and foremost. Greatness, it, it doesn't lie within ourselves. True greatness lies in Jesus. But once we see his greatness and when we keep it before our eyes, we really can be great followers of him. Not great in the way that the disciples meant as they argued, not great in the way that we might understand it, but great in the only way that matters. We can be great followers of Jesus in the eyes of God. Today in what follows, we see eight ways that we can be great followers of Jesus. This is the first one, straight from God. God tells us that great followers of Jesus listen. 
God speaks for the benefit of Peter, James and John there on the mountaintop and through them he speaks for the benefit of us. And listen to what he says in verse 7. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Just a second earlier, Peter had been motor-mouthing as usual instead of listening. But, but this is not just Peter's problem. Even on the way down the mountain, Jesus tells them again that he's going to die and rise again. And yet again, they just can't seem to understand, to hear it. And even after everything that we see that Jesus tells them today, next week we're going to see it just hasn't sunk in. But if we want to be great followers of Jesus, great in God's eyes, not our own, then this is where it all starts. Now, it sounds so obvious, and it is. But what's subtle is how we attempt to get around it. Like when Jesus says, you can't serve both God and money, we can find ways to subtly excuse our devotion to money. Or when Jesus speaks on unpopular topics like divorce or human sexuality, we can find subtle ways to hear what he's really trying to say. We can even love what Jesus says, but still not be listening. So when Jesus says, take up your cross or be the servant of all, we can love the idea of it, but not apply it to our own lives. But the job of a disciple begins and ends here at this point. We're to so listen to the voice of Jesus that he drowns out every other voice, even our own. The next thing we see in what happens is that great followers of Jesus believe. Jesus comes down the mountainside and he finds his disciples publicly humiliated and arguing with the teachers of the law. And when Jesus asks them what they're arguing about, the father of a boy possessed by a demon explains how his, his boy is in a really bad way. He can't speak. And the demon seems to cause something like epilepsy in him. So he's come looking for Jesus, but when he couldn't find Jesus, he tried the disciples, but they just weren't strong enough to help him. Look at how Jesus reacts when he hears the father's story about the disciples. Verse 19. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? The problem with the disciples is they still just don't believe. And it's not just a problem for the disciples, it's a problem for the entire generation, Jesus says. We see it even in the boy's father. He says to Jesus in verse 22, If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. But Jesus says, If you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Now, this isn't like a blank check. You know, Jesus isn't saying, If you believe you can fly, you can fly. Or if you believe you own a LaFerrari, you do. You've got to read what's happening here, what Jesus is saying, in the events that are happening. Jesus is saying in this situation, to this dad, who thinks that just maybe Jesus might be able to do something, Jesus is saying to him, if he believes, then what Jesus can do for this boy is everything. Now at this point... I think we can probably identify with the dad. He cries out in verse 24, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And so great 
is Jesus, that even this man's faltering belief is no barrier to him.